Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 26, 2011, and my guest is Roy Baumeister, the Francis Epps Professor of Social Psychology at Florida State University. Roy, welcome to Econ Talk. I'm glad to be here. Our topic for today is your book with the title, Is There Anything Good About Men? Uh, we're hoping that's a rhetorical question, uh, we men. Uh, it's an incredibly thought-provoking book on the differences between men and women and how culture shapes both sexes. I want to start with the psychology literature that you open up with and the perspective that social scientists have had towards men and women and their differences or similarities. And you talk early in the book about there's been a radical and sudden change about relative superiority of men and women. <clears throat> talk about what that what happened there. Well, I, I think uh, for a long time there was an assumption that uh, men were the the proper human beings and women were sort of an inferior copy and uh, the question was could women be almost as good as men and so on uh, and then um, there was a brief period of arguing there were no differences that they were equal uh, but since about 1980 uh, almost all the literature on gender differences either uh, says uh, women are better uh, or, uh, or or some say there there's still no differences um, but it's become sort of taboo to uh, see men as superior in any way now, I look at things that uh, the world is more built on trade-offs and any lasting difference uh, uh, it's likely to be because of a trade-off. So being better at one thing is likely to be connected to being not as good at something else. So neither, it, you know, it doesn't really seem plausible that nature would have made gender one, one gender all around better than the other. Uh, more likely it will preserve the differences if one is better for one thing and one is better for something else. Yeah, I like what you said about trade-offs. As an economist, of course, we deal a lot in trade-offs. I, I think it was Thomas Sowell who said the essence of economics is there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And early on in your book, you explicitly say that we're so we're typically looking for the best alternative, um, the best option, the the solution, and neglecting the fact that there usually means we have to sacrifice something, we have to give up something. Yeah, I think that's that's routinely true, and so. Uh, um, uh, men and women might be different because they are you know, suited or bred for different uh, purposes or different uh, uh, kinds of social interactions or something like that. But it, it doesn't seem likely that one's going to be all around better than the other. So it's really the biases and pressures and political correctnesses of the time uh, that insist uh, when you have an idea that one one gender is all all around better than the other. What are some of the dimensions that psychologists have looked at when they when they come to these conclusions? What are, what are the issues that, that people care about in that literature? Um, you mean uh, – That women are better. You know, I know that one issue we're going to talk about later is, is, is social skills. That they argue that a lot of people argue women are more social than men. What are some of the other dimensions that women are allegedly superior to men and ignoring well, that, trade-offs? Okay. Um, they uh, um, Being more social is an important one. Um, I think uh, being less uh, aggressive and competitive and all those things. Um, I, I think there's just a general uh, assumption that uh, it'd 
be better if men were more like women. And uh, even the, the psychology of men's groups and the American Psychological Association say there's a lot of uh, assumption that um, men should somehow change to be more like women. but uh, More empathetic, express themselves better, show their feelings, cry more, those kind of things. Yes, yes, all those things, yes. One of the issues that is under the surface of your book, and, and I, you don't really talk about we hear, I hear those things myself. Um, I, I cry at movies from time to time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of it, and it's, I guess uh, it's politically um, correct uh, given that theme. But I wonder how much those mores really affect how we ultimately, say, raise our children and, and turn out. Um, it is in the air, this idea that men should, quote, be more like women or more feminine or more – the world should be more egalitarian – do you think it matters that much? Or do we just kind of – is that just cheap talk from academics who do talk about it a lot? Well, my sense is uh, it really, we really have changed the way we bring up children. It's a much more girl-centered uh, environment. Um, I don't have as much contact uh, with the schools, but uh, you know, you know, when my wife uh, goes there and so on, she says, well, it seems like – with each decision they have to make, if there's one way that's better for boys and one way that's better for girls, they feel like, well, it would be sexist to do it the way that's better for boys, so we'll just do this one the way that's better for girls. And over and over, all those decisions get made like that, and especially uh, girls are, are more desired as students there. They mature a little bit faster, which is another interesting trade-off, actually. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, uh, I think but. Undeniably so, true, by yeah. the way, anyone who's ever looked at anyone under the age of 20 or been under yes. the age of 20. Um, yes. Um, you know, one example is. of that, of course, is um, the use of pharmaceutical products in the classroom. Uh, the whole attention deficit disorder uh, phenomenon, I assume, is a male phenomenon, overwhelmingly. Yes, I I mean, both both genders can have it, but it is, I think, more male, and uh, it is uh, it is a problem. A lot of boys are just medicated for, or, you know, the, the critics say they're just being medicated for being boys. Uh, but uh, the defenders it is say a little harder for an energetic boy to sit still and focus in a in a classroom and so on. And the, so again, the the women generally run the schools and they're making the decisions, and the girls are the better students, and they're trying you know, quite earnestly, to be fair to both, but each time it seems, well, we should do it the way that's better for girls. And so we end up kind of raising our boys like girls, which is probably not going to produce the best results. Well, we also, I think, have pushed our girls to be more like boys, too. It's an interesting phenomenon, right? We've tried to, women are much more, or pushed much more towards athletics today than they were 50 years ago, uh, and more towards the more physical athletics than they were 50 years ago. Um Sim, there's um, just more – girls are more active, it, you know, K through K through 12 in the school system, which seems like a good thing. Yes. Uh, of course, many of these things we're going to talk about have both – also have their own trade-offs, their, their benefits and, and costs to them. Let's move to uh, career activity. You, you have some very interesting things to say about two areas where men dominate. And, of course, the debate is over why they dominate. And those two areas are mathematics and uh, jazz, jazz uh, improv. And you talk in the book, and there's also a great essay uh, speech you gave on this, uh, a lecture that 
we'll put a link up to that it was the first I saw of the, some of the ideas in the book. You start talking about Larry Summers who got in a little trouble when – and that's – I'm being uh, ironic when I say little. He got in a lot of trouble at <laughs> Harvard. He was president and he speculated, if I remember correctly. It wasn't a bold statement. It was a speculation that it was possible that the frequency of male uh, success in mathematics and sciences was – perhaps genetic. Is, is that is that a correct summary of what he said? Yeah, I think he said just there might be more more men with really high ability. And there was this huge uh, outpouring of uh, indignation and uh, um, objections to what he said. And it turned out uh, there are more males at both extremes of the uh, IQ distribution. Males are just more genetically variable. So uh, so he was on very solid scientific ground. That he, uh, I, I think people took it that he was uh, implying that men were smarter than women all, on the whole. But uh, on that, uh, he, it's not what he was saying. The, the average could be precisely the same. If you have more men at both extremes, then you'll have more men at the high end. And that seems to be what just about every uh, large-scale study shows when you look at distributions of, uh, of intelligence. It's one of the themes of the book. Men go to extremes much more than women, probably for biological as well as for social reasons. And one of the things I found interesting about that is that when we look at historical outcomes for men and women, uh, a lot of women like to point out correctly that men are in positions of power, they're positions of dominance, they get much of the swag from uh, tyranny and other historically unpleasant events. But you point out they also are at the bottom in greater frequency. Yes, if you look at uh, who's uh, who's in prison, who's homeless, who's killed on the job, uh, even now, I got equal numbers of men and women working, but uh, still, something like ninety-three, ninety-four percent of deaths on the job are are, are men. That's because uh, they're so stupid and careless, Roy. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to keep that tone out of this podcast. But obviously, there there are many explanations for why they, that could be true. But the most uh, apparently, it's because they do the more dangerous jobs. That's right. Yes, and that that contributes to the higher salary thing. But uh, you know, even the higher salary thing could be just there are more men at both extremes, since you you don't have a Salaries don't all go all the way down into the negative numbers, so that the real extreme, extremely low quality males could can't pull the male average down. Only right. the high achieving ones pull it up. Yeah, the homeless, the higher proportion of homeless, for example, those should be negatives or low numbers. But since they're not, they're not in the data. You don't observe right. even the zeros, let alone the yeah. negatives, uh, whatever you want to call it, a negative. So why is it that? Let's assume we don't. I, obviously, it's hard to measure, but. We assume that the averages are the same, but just the male distribution has fatter tails, the two extremes, more in the on the ends and less in the middle. Why might that be? Do yeah. you have speculation on that? I have speculation. I should say um, I've been corrected on this a couple of times. I, I go around saying that the mean is the same, and in practical purposes, it's pretty close. But the real experts on intelligence come around and say, well, in adulthood, there is a tiny difference that the, the male is slightly higher than the female um, in measured on, IQ on, tests, on, on IQ tests, but it's such a small difference as to be uh, to be trivial. The more meaningful difference is uh, the greater difference at the extremes. Um, my sense is uh, it, it goes with the, uh, the the different rates of reproduction. That uh, in essence, um, males are nature's way of rolling the dice, uh, because if you think of of it constantly experimenting to try a new variation or a new mutation. Uh, um, most of those species, most of those experiments will turn out badly. Uh, every so 
species forward. Uh, so you want the bad ones to be flushed out of the gene pool right away and not reproduce, whereas you want the good ones to reproduce a lot. And male reproductive variance is like that. In other words, some men have no children at all, and some men have a lot of children, whereas women tend to cluster in the middle. Uh, relatively few women throughout history have had no children at all. Uh, certainly fewer women than men have gone gone childless. And at the opposite extreme, there are men who've had uh, hundreds, even thousands of children, and uh, of course, uh, no no woman can do that. The example you give in the book is Genghis Khan, a, a slightly un, <laughs> unpalatable uh, thought that he perhaps fathered thousands, if I remember correctly. Yes, thousands of children. He was a, a busy guy. So we are the many of many of us uh, in the world alive today are disproportionately related to Genghis Khan and say uh, his. Um, his cousin, who was a lot less uh, ambitious, um, what's the, you, you refer to a, a study, a DNA study on that, and the proportions are rather striking about how many of our ancestors are women versus men. You assume yes, it's fifty-fifty. Of course, we each had a father and a mother, as you point out in the book. Yes, yes, that's the assumption that our the ancestors of today's human race would be half women and half men. Uh, I think that's what people assume. It's a trick question. Uh, the DNA uh, research came out a few years ago and said, well, no, it's twice as many. Women as men. Now, laypersons tend to be surprised because they would—they thought it should have been fifty-fifty, and they have a hard time understanding how it could be unequal. But when you talk to biologists and people like that, they're surprised the difference isn't bigger, because in many species, twenty percent of the males but ninety percent of the females will reproduce. Uh, you get the situation where the males fight to the top, and then the alpha male goes and mates with all the the females in the group, so that uh, the females will have a, a child or a, a baby of whatever it is. Uh, each uh, each season, uh, with whoever happens to be the top uh, the top male, um, and in in human uh, history, the same sorts of things. Polygamy has been the norm in more societies than not. It's only the last couple centuries that we've uh, begun to insist on monogamy, uh, which, in my understanding, uh, is, is essentially a way of spreading the women around so that every man can have a woman. Uh, that uh, equalizes things much, so that will drive in the long run the the number of our ancestors toward closer, closer to 50-50. That's probably why it's two to one now rather than well, four or five to one, what it might have been in the in the more distant past. Yeah, there, there's a um, standard, I think, cultural view that polygamy is is bad for uh, women. But of course, uh, it's really bad for men <laughs> because uh, most of them won't be able to to get a spouse. The worst men, the least competitive men, are not going to get to marry. And yes, it's, it's a, hard to make out how polygamy itself is bad for women. Well, uh, it's sometimes are, mixed up with other things. But even a woman who wants to have a, a single husband all to herself, she's still better off in a polygamous society because there'll be such a surplus of single men. Right. People say, yeah, but you wouldn't want to be the fourth wife of a great man. Well, evidently some did in those days. They preferred did, to be. Yeah, I could think uh, there are probably some women around today who would rather be Bill Gates' third wife yeah. than, say, the only wife of an assistant uh, manager of a convenience store or, or something or like that. Or an assistant but, professor, uh, <laughs> a term that you cleverly uh, point out is not the most uh, – it's a slightly demeaning term. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah it's uh, too bad. Uh, but I want to I want to go back to this issue of um, eventually we're going to get back to women in jazz, which we'll we'll get back to. But I want to I want to talk a little bit more first about the uh, the competitive role in nature throwing away the <clears throat> the losing um, rolls of the dice, the bad rolls. So if you have 
yes. a, a culture through much of, of human history, particularly what we would call uh, primitive or prehistoric times, where a handful of the top men are reproducing at a very high rate and many of the men are not reducing at all. Over time, what that does is it selects for men who are – what are their traits going to likely be? Because you play – you use that a lot. Yes, well, uh, to get to the top, the man has to uh, um, dominate other men. He has to rise in the social structure according to whatever its rules are. So it's going to certainly select for ambition, uh, competitiveness. Aggressiveness. Um, uh, even aggressiveness through much of history, of course. Uh, physical domination Violence, was the yeah. important way. Uh, so uh, um, all those traits uh, would, would be prominent in a way that uh, that they didn't count in women, you know, that... Uh, that in a man, you know, remember, nature measures success by how many offspring you have, and so the ambitious, competitive, aggressive men were rewarded generation after generation with having more children than the mild, meek, uh, submissive, uh, go-along ones. Whereas in women, there there was no such differential rewarding. Uh, remember, in many animals, all the women, all the females reproduce, uh, so there isn't that much uh, need to have traits. There certainly isn't need to fight your way to the top of a hierarchy or outsmart others or uh, or anything like that. So the those passive men, the the less ambitious, less aggressive, less physically strong, they're going to be um they're going to fall stead- relentlessly and over time they're going to fall out of the gene pool. Uh in a way it's amazing how many quiet, passive, unaggressive people there are in the world overall then given that, right? It's one of the challenges to that theory. It, those should have been yes. we should the, we should all be Genghis Khan-like and less <laughs> like um, the assistant professors I know. Yes. Well, remember, um, only the uh, traits that are really tied to gender uh, will be selected in this way. Uh, certainly, there are genetic aspects of personality that are not on the same uh, chromosome or, or what have you uh, that uh, dictate uh, which gender you are. So, um, may, males and females will share some traits, but... When there is a gender-linked trait, it will uh, uh, it will tend to produce that difference. Yes, because because the, the women alive today are also the descendants of Genghis Khan, right? So that is it's, that is true. Yes. Why aren't yeah. they more aggressive? Why didn't because of that genetic uh, disproportion that, that where our ancestors are more male than female? Isn't that going to push? I don't know much genetics. Obviously, I'm going to embarrass myself now. But isn't doesn't that mean we're going to have women steadily becoming more like men? As as because of that ratio. No, that doesn't, and, and I'm not a genetic expert either, so maybe we shouldn't go too far uh, yeah, go in, in trying <laughs> to spell this out. Uh, but uh, nature is capable of having uh, gender-linked personality traits. And so uh, a woman might carry a trait, you know, even for male baldness. Uh, I am told, and I, I can't vouch for this, I'm told that if, yep. you're, you're, if a man go bald, it's not from your father, it's from your mother's father. Uh, so the women are there carrying a, a physical trait in this case that only shows up in the male. She doesn't go bald, right? But her son uh, may may get that trait and go bald. And in the same way, then uh, the uh, the male aggressiveness uh, that uh, Genghis Khan passed on uh, to uh, well, the women uh, he had. Well, his daughters might have carried some of that trait, but it may not have shown up or not as much in their own behavior, uh, but then come out uh, in in their sons since. Uh, Women aren't really biologically bred and selected for fighting other women in a way that uh, 
males, not just humans, but many species. Uh, yes, there's a there are men. I heard uh, Jim Dabbs, who uh, died a few years ago, but wrote a really authoritative book on testosterone. He remarked once that, uh, put it simply, the female body is designed to breed and care for children. The male body is designed to fight and kill other men. Uh, kind of sums but, it up. Yeah, <laughs> overstating it a little bit, but yeah. I, I think it's a very succinct uh, summary of the difference. I mean, that's why in the domestic violence literature, for example, uh, pretty much the heavy weight of ev- evidence suggests that women do, if anything, they're more likely to hit their partners as a small uh, uh, women are more violent toward their uh, romantic partners than men are, but they don't do as much damage. It's the the male men battering their wives that causes the social problem because uh, you know a woman uh, hurts it's her husband. And sometimes she will. Uh, you know, it is it is an underappreciated problem, and certainly when she uses a gun or a knife or something. Yeah, she, she can, can damage, apply. But she can add capital to her innate um, skills to be right, more effective. But in uh, the two, uh, if they get into a fist fight. The woman usually comes out second best because, yeah. uh, again, the, the male body is much better designed for it. You were commenting on women going into sports, but we're not seeing the big rush into boxing. That's uh, it's a little bit, not uh, much. That's not going to be equal anytime soon. Correct, and the same is true of the, the more physically demanding sports, football, any of them right. actually. Almost, uh, they're not going to be able to compete with men uh, at at the same level, obviously, because of those raw, those raw physical differences. One of the well, they don't even compete with each other on those. I mean, the, most sports are just women against women. There are very few sports where correct. women compete directly against men. Even pool and, and chess and some of those, in many cases, they have gender separated. But uh, but because uh, women will have their own soccer teams and, and, and baseball Basketball. teams and so forth, they don't seem to put together the most uh, the most dangerous sports, as in boxing and football. Yeah. Uh, perhaps sign of their superiority, or certainly their their wisdom. Um, I think that uh, yeah, again, it's, it's uh, partly the sign that a, a society regards males as more expendable, and uh, we don't seem to mind that much that uh, the injuries that many of our young men suffer uh, often carry with them with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, um, that they will uh, obtain from getting uh, playing football, things like that. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a it's literally a brutal sport, but the, the long run consequences are particularly brutal and there's some sensitivity to it these days there's a lot of talk about yeah. concussions and uh boxing is less fashionable it's it's part of the general cultural trend we talked about earlier i think that the things that are particularly manly are um not as popular as they once were football is but uh boxing is not and we we are we are relentlessly moving football toward a less physical game through equipment and through rules and rule changes, obviously, are trying to make it a less aggressive game. They are trying. Um, it's hard, it's yeah. <laughs> always a question as to whether the uh, <clears throat> the safety equipment makes it more or less dangerous. Well, I think it makes it more dangerous, actually. Yeah. Reading yeah. an article in The Economist when, uh, some years ago when somebody you know died from a boxing match, and they said, well, if you wanted to make boxing safer, you should get rid of the boxing gloves. <laughs> yeah, right. The gloves are supposed to reduce the, the impact, but... Yeah, they reduce the wear and tear on your hand, but then because of that, you can hit the head much harder. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that if we got rid of football helmets, it would be a safer sport uh, because people would act differently. Uh, that's the so-called Peltzman effect. We interviewed Sam Peltzman uh, here. We'll put a link up to that podcast, but I think it's a real it's a real uh, effect. One of the issues we haven't mentioned, which I think you talk about with real eloquence, is risk-taking. Um, we talked about aggression, ambition, but uh, you said it's historically it's the men who get in the boat and go off to conquer another world because they're 
having trouble dominating the men around them. They figure they'll go do something heroic. They'll go do something at least on different territory. So that aspect of competitiveness is uh, historically quite important, and women don't do it. Yes. Remember, again, and biology rewards success by giving you more offspring. Well, the women uh, throughout uh, our, our history pretty much uh, playing it safe is a valid strategy. Uh, most women are going to be able to reproduce. So it's just a matter of uh, playing it safe and uh, uh, you know, trying to make make sure you get a good offer or you, you pick the better pick the uh, genes to mix yours with, things like that. Uh, whereas the males, you're facing a dead end biologically. Most males are not. So you got to play some angle. You've got to try something new. Uh, sailing off into the unknown, you might, you might get killed, but you might come back rich. And uh, we tend to be descended from the ones who did take the chance and who were lucky and, and successful and managed to come back rich, the ones who... Who drowned or, uh, uh, or or whatever? They they left no uh, no traits, no heirs, but uh, would have been probably the same if they had just stayed at home in a minor role. They wouldn't have reproduced either. So uh, they were taken, but uh, from a, a biological reproductive uh, point of view, it looks like the best the best shot they had. Now the skeptics so, would say those differences are. Oh, there might be some genetic difference, but the cultural aspects are huge. So that the patriarchy over time. Uh, oppressed women, kept them down, gave them these attitudes, encouraged them to be passive, uh, punished them and raised the, punished them for being aggressive. Uh, we still see this today in politics when female politicians throw angry fits. They get it. There's a, an alleged double standard. So, what about this argument that it's our culture historically that has caused these differences between men and women's uh, risk taking and aggressiveness? Well, culture tends to build on nature. I, I'm trying to, in my book, I wanted to understand why the patriarchal difference got started. Uh, most of the uh, anthropologists uh, subscribe to the view that the hunter-gatherers are pretty egalitarian in terms of men and female, uh, males and females being roughly equal in terms of their status and their position and uh, their contribution. Uh, I guess the men contribute a little bit more in terms of the total calories that everyone gets, but... Uh, the men as hunters, it's much more variable. Some days you come home with a feast, and some days you, you come home with nothing. Whereas the women are gathering berries and things, that's that's always there, so uh, they're more reliable. And you know, the the two are equal. So what what produced the difference? You know, we, uh, this uh, idea that that the history of culture is all about men approaching uh, oppressing women, I think, is a very one-sided and, and not all that well-supported view. Uh, that's really been pushed or uh, hoisted on us uh, more for political reasons than, than based on uh, a thoughtful understanding of the facts. So my sense is uh, what happened is hunters and gatherers uh, had separate spheres, the male sphere and the female sphere, um, organized along the lines that um, the way men relate to each other and the way women relate to each other, which uh, for the men they tend to build the bigger networks of shallower relationships, whereas the women make the more intense uh, close relationship uh, one-to-one bonds. Um, cultural progress, however, grows much better from the, the bigger networks of shallow relationships uh, rather than from the small one. And so what I, I think happened, rather than this, this idea that the men banded together and decided, well, let's oppress women and push them down, actually the net effect of the men was to bring women up. It's just the men push themselves forward more rapidly. It's that progress and, you know, the creation of human culture essentially emerged from the men's sphere. And the history of, of cultural progress is mostly men competing, groups of men competing against other men. It's not men against women. So 
progress was created and the men raised their sphere, whereas in the women's sphere, in the one-to-one relationships, there was very little progress. Uh, if you want to go through the history of the world and look for things that groups of men or groups of women have done, you know, there are far more uh, contributions by, by groups of men. And, you know, the women are busy doing other important things. And uh, as I said, the, the intimate relationships are more important, but... Uh, Women don't tend to cooperate uh, in large groups with other women. They don't don't band together except now and then to complain about uh, the men. Uh, but they, they don't do it. The, the small business data even today show the same thing. Women are starting more small businesses than men, but they don't grow them into big if you, uh, businesses. If you look at the ones that become the Fortune 500 uh, corporations or even you know, well below that, but still quite uh, large organizations, then... Uh, then the men are doing that. And that, uh, again, shows the, the complementary roles and the, the different emphases. It's easy for my, my colleagues, as we were talking about earlier, to look at men and say, well, the men should be more like women. You know, it would be better to show your feelings more and communicate more and uh, be really uh, uh, deeply involved in intimate relationships and care mostly about that. Well, um, we have women who do that, and yes, there are some rewards if men did that too, but... There's a trade-off between the kind of traits you need to build a strong, intimate relationship and the kind of traits you need to negotiate your way around a large group or corporation or whatever where you've got enemies and rivals and other things. Expressing your feelings is a, is, is a, is a, is a classic one of that. Uh, Costly if strategy. If you're building an intimate relationship, sharing your feelings is one of the best things. It helps your partner know you better and know what you care about and so on so that, that the person love you can take care of you better. But if you go, well, you mentioned economics, if you're going to buy a used car or a house or something, if you show all your feelings right away, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. Uh, and likewise, if you know it's a boardroom meeting where you're trying to argue who's going to get the deal, if you've uh, given away all your feelings and shown all your feelings, your your rivals can uh, take advantage of you and exploit you there. So it's, it's probably useful for the males in their sphere to keep their feelings a little bit more under wraps and... Uh, not show them and not reveal them as fast. It, it might make it harder to build the uh, the best intimate relationship, but that's not the only criterion. And again, the large group things uh, tend to be very much male things, and that's what's uh, brought culture forward. And ultimately, as I said, that's what lifted women up too. I think this idea of uh, history is all about men pushing women down is has been. I'm not going to say it never happened, but it's been way overstated. Uh, women, century after century, were better off than their predecessors because of the advances that the men made. It's just the culture was created by men, and that's why men dominated uh, uh, dominated it and have the top roles in it and so forth. That's a great point about the uh, – a statistic I always talk about is the enormous, extraordinary <clears throat> reduction in uh, death and childbirth. Uh, maternal mortality is uh, one of the great human successes, that reduction – and of course, so, yes. go ahead. And that was uh, that was the with the work of men. I mean, women had managed childbirth for for centuries and centuries with men totally excluded. But when the men finally were permitted to get involved in it, they were able to come up with some ways to make it better, safer for mother and child. Now, this gives me my segue to go back to our um, the jazz issue, and then I want to take it back forward. We'll come back and talk about. Some of the literal – there's some actual economics in your book, which is very well done on trade and, and um, exchange and specialization. So I want to come back to that. But, but I want to ask you about the jazz issue. You – unlike the math issue, so we look at the data, we see a, a, an enormous preponderance of 
uh, male success versus female in, in the high end of mathematics and at the in the high end of jazz music. So they're great female jazz singers, but there are virtually no jazz musicians that are considered great who are women. And you suggest that that's not an example of, say, extreme ability where the the right-hand tail of the distribution is what gets sampled, but rather a preference difference. Explain that. Yes, I, uh, I – uh, let me give it a start with a more general point. Uh, much of the discussion of gender differences has really become acrimonious, poisoned by the idea of who's better and are men better or women better. And so there's uh, all this talk about uh, – about ability differences, and is there any difference? And you mentioned earlier the Larry Summers thing: is our our boys better at math, or are they have better uh, scientific ability, or better uh, intelligence overall, and stuff like that? And I said, well, the differences, you know, if they're there, are, are in ability are small, but the differences in motivation, in what you like and want uh, and feel, those differences are much bigger. We've now had several since the book came out, several major scholarly works on the gender differences in the sciences, and they pretty much uh, come down to what I was uh, already saying and suspecting when I wrote the book, which is that uh, it's not a uh, it's not a difference in, uh, in in ability; it's a difference in motivation. Girls can do science just fine, uh, but they don't uh, they don't like it. It doesn't attract them uh, as much. Uh, studying, I have a female colleague who calls it the dead world. <laughs> uh, the sciences that study inanimate things like physics and chemistry and so on. Hmm, that just seems to have uh, uh, less appeal to women. They start to get interested when there's biology, when there's some degree of life, but uh, much more when there are, are people. Uh, women are, are fascinated by people. Uh, in psychology, we've certainly got uh, plenty of women and indeed more, more female than male uh, majors at, at most colleges right now. But... Uh, that it, it's the interest and not uh, and not the ability that that drives that. Now with uh, with creativity, and we were talking to bring it back to the point of jazz. Uh, the psychology of of creativity is a field that's been going there for a long time, and they have all sorts of tests. And uh, as far as I can make out, on those tests, boys and girls, men and women are equally creative. There's not any big gender difference, and then you have to stack that up with well, in the history of the world, so much creative innovation has been by male, so much more than by female. And jazz being a case in, in point, um, that uh, it wasn't access to musical instruments. Um, it, it isn't even the ability to play, uh, because if you go, say, to classical music, uh, there are women at the very highest levels who will play uh, you know, superbly, wonderfully, uh, uh, you know, really master an instrument uh, to... Uh, to the highest levels of virtuosity. Um, if there's any difference, uh, you know, some will say that the, the male hand being slightly larger, so you can hit yeah. one note farther away on the on the piano when you're playing, uh, so, uh, you know, yeah. tiny little things like that. But uh, Bella Davidovich can play the piano just fine. Yeah. 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 But uh, yes, uh, women play the instruments, uh, but at the creative parts, uh, improvising in jazz uh, and also composing. Uh, throughout the history of the world, most of the great composers uh, have have been male. So there seems to be, I'm, I'm suggesting the abilities are the same, there's simply a lack of interest in doing that. Uh, we, we talk about, uh, you talked about the usual excuses that people make, well, maybe women weren't encouraged or they were oppressed or whatever, but if you go back to the 1800s, women played piano much more than men. It was common, a standard part of the education of a middle-class girl to take piano lessons, not so much for the boy. 
uh, when uh, there's a thing in the British Museum where Charles Darwin was doing the pros and cons of getting married, and he listed under one of the advantages of getting married is he could hear music. Uh, remember, they didn't have radios or television or any kind of recorded music back then. If you were going to have music in your home, you had to have an instrument, and then you had somebody who knew how to play it. So it meant pretty much having a piano and a wife who would play it because, uh, you know, the men... Uh, didn't do that. And yet all those women, all those women playing, they didn't create uh, any new musical movements, uh, they didn't compose a lot, they didn't develop new styles. And meanwhile, around the same time, the black men in the United States, just coming out of, out of slavery by any measure, much more disadvantaged than those, uh, those women. They created blues and then jazz, you know, two new forms of, of music that have changed the way the world heard music. So again, Remember, I'm saying the ability is the same, but uh, there's some way in which the male is more driven to use that creativity to make his mark. I'm not going to say even that women are not creative, because women, you know, a woman will take care of her children and will come up with creative little things to do for them and so on, but uh, she doesn't seem to feel the drive to use that creativity to make her mark uh, in society. Um, At least historically. I, now, you could argue that Yes, Again, yeah. there's this tension between how much of that was genetic or cultural, how much did culture build on the genetics. Clearly, mm -hmm. women today, say in rock music, where there, there's uh, an enormous, been an enormous explosion of, of women's mm -hmm. um, success in, in that in that sphere. Uh, my guess is that jazz will possibly be next. You do see women being more aggressive, being more creative using the skills that they have and, and seemingly enjoying it more than they once did. So that doesn't that make you wonder whether some of those changes in the past, some of those roles in the past were, um, were quote, artificial? Well, yes. As I said, uh, nature generally builds on, a culture rather generally builds on nature. What's happened through most societies in the history of the world is maybe small, differences in average differences in inclination between men and women gradually get reified and locked in by a culture that, well, this is the men's life in the men's sphere and this is the women's life in the women's sphere. Uh, our culture is embarked on a very interesting experiment to try to reverse that, to try to just let's erase, if we can, gender differences and make uh, men and women as similar as possible. We certainly, I think, uh, and quite rightly have agreed that it's, it's not fair or people's uh, options and how they want to live their lives to be uh, restricted based on their gender any more than they have to be. I mean, you still haven't figured out how men could give birth or anything like that. But well, uh, no, they're working on that one. They are. <laughs> I mean, they're all, uh, at least carry the baby for a while. There, there, there's there's some creative, okay. unusual stuff going on there. But I think the issue which we we have to mention, which is obviously in the background here, is that any of these differences are on average. Uh, obviously, there are. Women capable and interested in doing all kinds of things, they may be very they may be very unusual for women, but they they yes. might be in the right hand tail of women in some distribution that yes. we're, we're talking about. And then this more egalitarian world gives them a chance, which otherwise it would be socially unacceptable, or you know, that it could be boxing, right. it could be being a soldier, a police yeah. uh, police officer. These are all places where women have yeah. been eager to take a, have a role. It's really a terrific time to be a. Uh to be a girl or a woman, uh, the society is uh, really encouraging, and uh, uh, the structural uh, barriers and so on are essentially gone, and lots of uh, support. So, uh, uh, yes, it's uh, there's really been great moral progress uh, in our society in that regard. But you do suggest there's a trade-off. 
that it can, um, be, dif- it can be difficult for men as a result. Well, yes, uh, those don't necessarily have to be trade-offs. I think, you know, the way we're doing it in some ways, it uh, is to the disadvantage of men. I mean, this latest proposal that uh, they're going to apply that uh, sports uh, Title IX to uh, to science and math classes, essentially not let men take science and math until an equal number of women do it. Um, well, that uh, there are some costs there, certainly in, like in, in, in college sports. Many men were simply unable to play the sports they wanted to because uh, um, the uh, interpretation was there had to be equal numbers of uh, men and women in sports or proportional to the, uh, the campus population as a whole. And again, the difference is motivation, not ability. The girls were just not as interested as the boys in playing sports all along. So try as they might, the uh, universities can't get the women to come out and join the sports teams, and so they have to cancel some of the men's teams. Well... You know, sports, maybe that, maybe that's a loss, maybe it's not a great thing, but science has been one of the foundations of our, our, our nature's, uh, our nation's, uh, success and superiority and its, uh, cultural progress. So if we screw that up by, uh, essentially driving the boys away and, uh, um, well, there, there could be hell to pay. Yeah, that would be costly. Um, I want to get back to this issue of, um, Progress in large groups versus the smaller spheres of intimacy, and I want to do that by getting at the literature that you reference on social characteristics. You talk about for a long time there was this view that that women were more social. It's certainly a, a cultural stereotype that women mm-hmm. are more social and that men are more um, – they like to keep to themselves more, don't express themselves, etc. Uh Talk about how that literature and psychology has changed over in recent years and, and why it's important for the, the implications for culture. Well, the assumption that uh, women are more social, uh, I think you may still see that uh, in many places. Uh, I, it was really brought home to me when I uh, received a manuscript to review of making that argument very strongly. I had just published this argument on the need to belong, uh, concluding that all humans, both male and female, one of the core motivational features is this drive to form and maintain uh, social connections to others. So I wasn't quite, I was a little surprised to hear that men didn't have this or had less of it. And as I looked at the data, well, women are more social if you count social only in terms of forming the one-to-one relationships. That uh, as, the, as the relationships uh, studies uh, put it, uh, women are the experts on relationships and uh, they understand that they're, they're strongly motivated to form uh, pair bonds with one another and, and so forth. But if you look at activities in larger groups, if you, if you look at social being social in the form of groups and so forth, then males are, if anything, more social. Almost all the activities uh, that will associate with large groups uh, are, are, tend to be male activities, whether it's team sports or uh, even scientific content. Uh, economic activities uh, and so forth, uh, military too. Um, males tend to be much more interested in the, in the large groups. Men um, like gangs. Uh, like gangs too, yes. Yeah. There are some female gangs, but, but not nearly as many. There's a very revealing study in uh, the people in Chicago, uh, uh, Cacioppo and Gardner and those have, have this giant study on loneliness, which is a really groundbreaking piece of work. And they've one of their analyses they found that uh, well, for both males and females, whether you're lonely is determined in part by whether you have you know, a close relationship to someone who cares about you. You have a boyfriend or girlfriend or a best friend or somebody. 
And you know, having a few of those makes a few difference. And that the men and women are the same. What they also found was that how much you identify with your organization, your sports team, your company, your university, this makes a difference in the loneliness of males, but not females. Uh, to the female, to belong to the large group has, is just irrelevant to uh, whether she's lonely or not. Uh, whereas for males, that is that can satisfy that need in a way. And I think that, again, shows that uh, the male, again, the differences between men and women are in what they desire. The males are more oriented toward uh, desiring the larger uh, interactions in the larger uh, social group. I think uh, we also talk at some point, uh, when I review this stuff, there, there are experimental studies showing the same sort of thing. So they'll have two children play, and then they'll bring in a third and see what the, the first two do. Well, if it's two girls, they tend not to let the third girl play. They don't want her. They, they want to keep playing with just the two of them, and they exclude her. The two boys will let the third boy join in. And I'm not saying this to argue in some kind of moral superiority or boys or anything like that. It's just it's different. for girls, they want the one-to-one contact, and adding the third person spoils it for them. Whereas for the boys, it doesn't spoil it. It's fine to have three and four and so on. Uh, so the boys, uh, again, the boys will more spontaneously organize the big uh, the big play groups and play events and things like that uh, uh, than the girls uh, left to themselves. Uh, when it's playtime, the girls will pair off and pretty much play one-on-one with the same person the whole time. If the boy plays one-on-one, he'll play with one guy for a while, and then he'll play with somebody else for a while, and so on. So it'll be a revolving series of others, or, as I said, we'll get involved in the larger groups. All these show, you know, in something as, as seemingly innocuous but as universal and meaningful as children's play, uh, the, the different orientations, the different patterns toward uh, being social. It has nothing to do with girls being oppressed or anything like that. It's just uh, what kinds of things they like they like to do and what kinds of things are satisfying to them. And Well, there are some differences between the, what, what the male finds. And in those male groups, um, the men often keep score. Makes a difference. <laughs> right? Yes, I... Uh, I've, I've very compe- study, men are very competitive. It, it's uh, they like to keep they like ac- those group activities. They like group activities that have a scorecard. Yes, yes. I uh, we all think males watch sports more than women, and they probably do. But I was I always thought you'd probably find the biggest difference not even in watching a sports game because you know women would like to watch a, uh, an entertaining game now and then and so on. But uh, you'd probably find the biggest gender difference in who checks the scores uh, for a game you're not going to watch. Do you? Uh, log on or get the newspaper or something and turn to see what the score was of some game yesterday because to the male that's uh, settling which one is superiority and that just resonates with that very deeply rooted thing we were talking about earlier you got to fight your way to the top we're descended from the males who uh, fought their way to the top because that's how men reproduced and, and and it wasn't a factor for women so fighting your way to the top just doesn't doesn't matter uh, the idea of looking up a score on a game that was played yesterday for uh, Many women I know are. It would just be a matter of of silly indifference. They they do look at it differently, uh, in my experience. Uh, I have referred in the past on this program to a cartoon, which I'm again going to get slightly wrong, but uh, I'll mention it again. Uh, It's it's a couple getting into the just married car to start their honeymoon. They've just exited the church. The man, in my memory, has his hand on the radio knob, and he says, turns to the wife and says something like. Let me just check the score, and the cartoon is entitled "The First Straw." <laughs> it's really a superb insight into, I think, that difference, and I think it yes, is real. Yes, um, yes. But men like to keep score, and, and one of the 
the points you make, and let's come back now to the trade and, and cultural progress issue. One of the remarkable aspects that you've talked about in this conversation, which I, I don't remember reading in the book, is that it's hard to make intimacy better over time. Um, in your lifetime, you can get better at intimacy. You can be a better friend, a better spouse. You can be a better parent or a child uh, to, your, to your parents. As you get older, you learn things. You get wiser. It's hard to improve it over the centuries though. But those large groups, those large interlocking networks, say, of trade um, – and it reminds me of Adam Smith's insight that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. As those networks of trade expand, the opportunities for specialization expand, the opportunities for transformation and improvements in standard of living and innovation and technology all become extraordinarily powerful. And it's what's lifted us out of a subsistence lifestyle for the average person in the last three, four hundred years. And that's you argue the male sphere, and it's a very interesting argument. Um, yes, socially so, uh, uh, it is, and it, uh, it is the kind of thing you just won't find women building up those those networks. And uh, you know, this, again, this is the kind of thing that happened over and over, place after place, all around the world. Uh, why? You know, there's no objective reason why women couldn't have uh, built these networks and done this instead, but. Uh, uh, you know, of the what the two hundred countries in the world right now, but uh, I bet just about all of them were uh, were founded and built up by men. And you know, as you point out, that's changing, and we're embarked on a very different social uh, experiment, a very different strategy. We encourage now women to do that embarking. Right, many many women go get get MBAs, they go to law school. Um, they go to college in higher proportions, at least finish college in higher proportions than men, mm-hmm. um, with the expectation, at least on paper, that they will go on to be parts of these larger networks. Uh, it seems to be happening to some extent, right? Uh, oh, certainly, yes, yes, yes. certainly, it's not ruled out. What, what's your take on that? Are you arguing that that it's it's a again a, a predilection towards what women enjoy, and and they. They just aren't going to enjoy it as much, so they won't be as as aggressive in in pursuing those links and those those large organizations. But they seem to be doing it with with success. Uh, yes, actually, when I first uh, began talking about this, someone came up and said he had recently completed a big study of uh, management consultants, of which there are plenty of successful, both males and females, and uh, you know they made similar money and stuff. He said, but. The males built wider networks of contacts. It was still the same thing. They were, uh, uh, you know, showing that greater interest in uh, in having a huge, uh, huge network of shallow relationships that is still reflected in the male thing. So, yes, women can certainly uh, perform very well in these. And some, some uh, remember too, we're not talking about men are totally one way and women are totally Correct. different way. We're talking about overlapping distributions. What's surprising to me is you still just don't see. The women building these up very, very much. They uh, they can come into them once the men have created them. Uh, that's been really uh, the, the complaints by the feminists we've heard for decades. You know, they want the existing organizations to stra- to change. They don't want just the right to make their own organization and do it the way they want it. If, uh, if they complain about the way it's been, well, you could create a new, you know, a new organization, a new company, and so on. Um, Liz Claiborne, who died uh, just a couple of years ago when I was finishing uh, the book, uh, 
I think she was the first woman to create a, a corporation that made it into the Fortune 500. Um, and she got to it was four forty something, I think you mentioned in the book. Pardon me. It was number four forty. It was. It made it into the top okay. five hundred, just sort of barely. Yeah. But, but it was in the top five hundred. and That was newsworthy. Yes. Uh, but just newsworthy because it's it's so rare and and really you know is the marketplace. Uh, do you when you go to buy a, a toothpaste or something like that, uh, would you say, well, I don't want to buy this toothpaste because it's produced by a corporation that was started by a woman? You wouldn't even know. There's very little bias there. You know, anybody can make progress and uh, make make products and, and compete in the marketplace. Uh, but uh, but again, that that sort of empire building mentality that uh, seems to be much more uniquely males. Again, I'm not saying the women can't do it. They certainly can. They just don't seem to be as uh, as driven. Well, there's also a ruthlessness there that uh, may be more male on average, right? Steve Jobs passed away recently, and. I'm a big fan of Apple and, and his products, and I'm a huge respecter of his creativity. We talked about it at the end of the podcast with Frank Rose. Um, and now there are these stories coming out that he wasn't the nicest person. Um, well, most successful people have a dark side. They yes, are, yes. Um, they do disdain a lot of relationships uh, to be successful. They do shortchange their families. You know, Steve Jobs at the end of his life said – he wish he'd been a better father, but most successful people, male or female, have to give up something because of the time dimension that's required there. And there's a, there is a certain ruthlessness, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely, yeah. The market doesn't reward ruthlessness, but it requires a certain level of aggressiveness that often is associated with that, with that character trait or a lack of uh, yes. kindness, empathy, and, whatever you want to call it. And some ruthlessness is rewarded. I mean, yeah. when you... Let's say uh, you have two corporations, one with an idea of we love everybody and we're going to take care of everyone and so on, and the other, uh, we just want the most competent people and we're going to fire the people who don't perform. Well, you can certainly see the the first more feminine sort would be a nicer place to work, uh, but Maybe. it might not end up making as much money. Might not survive. As, as the other one, it might not survive when times are hard. So... uh to kind of create the kind of innovation that Steve Jobs did, and uh, and again we can say, well, we wish men are more like women, but uh, do we really wish he had, he had been a woman and uh, maybe would not have done those things? We, we don't. It's hard to point to very many women who have created that level of, of technological innovation. Um, and although he was actually, you know, the, the funny part about this is that he was a a great team leader. Uh, I'd be interested in how many members of his team were women if to, to yes. really give evidence for this kind of discussion. Yeah, it's still, right. yeah. still only an anecdotal argument, but the yeah. um, one of his great gifts was to motivate others to be creative. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a little more complicated than just uh, his own his own genius. That was part of his genius. It's quite subtle, I think, um, and some of that motivation was quite harsh. Evidently, I'm sure he was. A tough person to work for. For the, some people, that was exhilarating, and for others, it was unbearable. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't easy. We're sh- yes, so if you want to get a long way in a short time, you can't suffer too many fools all that gladly. And uh, I'm, I'm not surprised that in yeah. his mind, he, he probably wasn't, and you know, maybe had some more, even more unsavory traits as well. But uh, some of that stuff goes together. Yeah, agreed. Um, one example you mentioned in the book that I found utterly fascinating, and it, it has also it came up recently in a podcast that we did with uh, Deborah Satz, was um, what happened on the Titanic. 
talk about that because I think it's not well known. Uh, the example came up in a previous podcast. We were talking about a different type of inequality, uh, income inequality, and how whether it's fair that the rich get the lifeboats disproportionately than the poor. What do you do if there's not enough lifeboats? Um, should it be random? Uh, and I'm always, as an economist, I'm always worrying about the things that encourage there to be more, lots of lifeboats. So that that's often what people ignore or forget when they're looking at just one episode. But something interesting happened on the Titanic you talk about in the book. Describe it. Oh, well, yes. Uh, it, it was true that rich people survived more than poor people. Uh, there were not enough lifeboats. Um, but uh, the biggest difference was males versus females. And in fact, the poorest women had a higher survival rate than the richest men. Uh, so anyone who talks about patriarchy or whatever, I mean, those guys were the patriarchs, the, the rich, upper-class, upper yeah. white males, and yet they couldn't even get seat, uh, seats in the, the lifeboats uh, as long as there were uh, uh, poor, uh, impecunious women uh, in line. They, they, the women all had to go first. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's just another, I think, revealing sign. The Titanic was somehow a dramatic example. Uh, but uh, more generally, that's, that's that's just the case. I think most men know that uh, in a pinch they'll be expected to sacrifice their lives uh, to let the women and children uh, survive. Uh, society values the lives of women and, and children better. We still see also in the news there'll be a discussion of a terrorist bombing or something like that, and then they'll say even women and children uh, were, were killed, which uh, is essentially saying, well, it would have been better if just men were killed. Uh, but... Uh, uh, women, uh, you know, it's somehow worse uh, for a, a woman to die uh, than for a man to die because her life is uh, is valued more. I think, too, some of the tension as women moved into the workplace reflected that, that women were used to being valued. Uh, women essentially are, are long been entitled to respect simply by virtue of being a woman. A, a girl grows up and she automatically becomes a woman and she's entitled to respect as a woman. Uh, in the old male organizations, however, the boys had to prove themselves in order to be men, and there wasn't, you weren't entitled to respect. You had to, to fight for respect and to earn it. Uh, indeed, a lot of places had those uh, local cultures with uh, put downs and other signs of disrespect, which I think were functional to remind uh, everybody that uh, unless you achieve and produce and you earn respect, you'll be exposed to this kind of humiliation uh, at all time. And it's a way of motivating the men to try harder and to work harder. Uh, to uh, to prove themselves. The idea in modern organizations that everyone is entitled to respect, I think that's a uh, a radical idea and in some ways not as uh, not as motivating, not as uh, useful uh, for an organization as saying, well, you know, respect has to be earned. Uh, you're not entitled uh, to respect until you uh, contribute something uh, to uh, to earn it. And it's part of the self-esteem movement that you talk about, this idea yes. that we're all winners. Yes. Um, this yes. is a, a very modern and perhaps transient uh, yeah. phenomenon. Right. The effect of that uh, on on girls could be debated. I think the effect on boys is pretty uniformly negative. Explain. I, um, well, <laughs> I could mention here I, uh, about a month ago I was visiting a, a young professor who had gotten his PhD with me and uh, we were talking about, talking about advising students. Uh, and I said, uh, when I started, I could tell everybody, all the professors, they either worked with only male or only female students, and I wanted to work with both because I want to get the, the best. And I said, over time, I kind of evolved a strategy. It seemed like with the, the women students, you had to be building them up and encouraging them, and with the male students, you had to be pulling them down to earth and deflating them and uh, you know, 
bursting their bubble a little bit. And uh, he said, yeah, you said that, I remember. And I, I just sort of thought, well, that's some kind of old-fashioned sexist stuff. But he said, now that he's a professor himself, he says, that's exactly right. And that's, uh, that's what he's had to adopt in his own strategy, too, uh, that uh, telling, telling people, encouraging things all the time, uh, that maybe if you want to say women have insecurities and so on, then that could be good for a lot of women. Uh, to some degree, but for the males, there tends to be more narcissism, more overconfidence, uh, so on, especially in the young male. So when you you flatter that kind of person, you're not compensating for an insecurity. You're really catering to his his worst tendencies. As we know, gender differences in self-esteem are largest. Not they're not ever all that large, but uh, uh, they're at the largest around the time of late adolescence. Yeah, I've Probably for biological reasons. I mean, what my, my, my evolutionary-minded colleagues say is that, well, that's the time when the young male had to fight his way to the top of the hierarchy, get prepared to challenge to become the alpha male himself. Yeah, so to, get in it, the, to get in that boat with those other guys to go look for the treasure, too, you got to be pretty confident. It's not yes, you, you don't really to want to get in the boat. Yep. Or to go to war. It's there, they're not, or to go to war, yeah. Or, to, like I said, or in a small group to pick a fight with the alpha male and try to take his place. All those, you got to be maybe a little more confident than it'd be warranted. Because if you don't t- take the chance, then you're, you're not going to reproduce anyway. So uh, if you take the chance and lose, well, you're, you're no worse off than you were in a sense. But uh, if you take the chance and win, maybe that, that will help you to do it. And again, all these things were absent from the reproductive contingencies of, of women through the centuries. So that uh, that late adolescent phase of, uh, of overconfidence that... Uh, you know, especially in my field where we're training people to do scientific research and it's a very disciplined, you know, slow down, think things through, make sure you've uh, considered every angle, do the interpretation, you better go back and do another study or you work harder on this, you know, discipline people to work harder and the, the, the young man who thinks he's going to be a, a Nobel Prize winner in a few years or something, he needs to be brought down to earth and, and, and harnessed to discipline and told you've got to earn, earn your place and uh, earn your respect. So telling them, well, you're great and you're entitled to it, which is the new educational strategy, I think that tends to bring out uh, some of the worst traits uh, in, in males. Well, in economics, which is uh, – there's a, a photograph I have of the American Economic Association, which is our professional group, um, meeting with um, – I think it's President Coolidge. Uh, and it's a photograph of – of the uh, the contingent outside the White House, <clears throat> it's overwhelmingly male. There are two things that are ob- that are striking about the photograph. One is it's overwhelmingly male. Uh, there's a handful of women. They may be wives of the of the uh, economists. Um, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the other thing that's obvious: they're all wearing hats. Uh, all the men, because hats were considered uh, necessary in a if you're going to go visit the president or do anything formal in those days. So those are two things that have changed. We don't wear hats much anymore and there are a lot more women in economics. But it is still uh, overwhelmingly a male field and it's a very arrogant field. And one of the things I complain about on this podcast is the lack of humility among economists about what they know and don't know. I think that's a <laughs> – That would be a male failing. It yes, would be. And it's a, it's a, but it's an incentive problem as well. That there's a certain incentive toward exaggerating your yeah. your success and and, and – your confidence in your ideas, if you want to be interviewed and you know paid attention to, so there's a the hierarchical thing going on there, a competitive thing that I think is pretty not so healthy for truth. Um, I'm told economics and chemistry are the two fields with the biggest 
the sex ratio right now, the pre- really? preponderance of males to females. Hmm. Um, and there'll be others uh, not far behind, yeah, I suppose. They're, but, they're uh, but I understand it. And again, it's not, uh, I think, an ability, but much more a, uh, a motivation factor. Now, there are many, uh-huh. there are many, many, many other interesting ideas in this book. Uh, I'm sure we've touched on a lot of them. I'm sure we'll generate some interesting emails. Uh, and um, the book is a very controver- has some very controversial things in it. One thing we haven't had a chance to talk about, like to close with, is you talk about culture in a very in the way an economist would, in particularly the way a Hayekian economist would. You see culture as emerging, cultural attitudes emerging from competition among cultures, and I want you to. Talk about that, what you mean by that, and the way at least I've phrased it. And, and then I want to ask you maybe one or more, two questions, and we'll, then we'll, we'll, um, we'll close the interview. But talk about wh- how you see culture evolving and emerging through the competitive process. Well, uh, yeah, culture is uh, – let me back up a little bit. Culture uh, I see as, as our biological strategy. Many people argue, well, is this culture or nature and so on? Well, Nature, we evolved to do culture. It's, it's how our species solves the problem uh, of uh, survival and reproduction, which is the same problems every, every other species faces. Uh, but we do it in it, we solve it in a different way. And by culture, I mean sharing information, creating networks uh, of uh, economic trade, uh, as I said, information sharing networks, uh, cooperative uh, uh, interactions where you have division of labor and uh, you can specialize and do things. Well, those those all really work, and uh, they accumulate knowledge over over time and, ac- and accumulate wealth and power. Um, now, uh, groups uh, culture has several jobs. It's to enable people to live together, uh, to enable them, as I said, to survive and reproduce. But part of that is that you're competing against uh, other other groups too. So. Uh, even if we're talking in a fairly primitive uh, manner of uh, a couple different tribes in the same area, well, uh, one of them is going to get uh, a better space than the other. And competition can take the form of economic or military uh, or, or some other uh, form, but uh, one way or the other, uh, one culture will be more successful than the other. So uh, cultures have become the way they are, partly uh, because these are the things that worked and that prevailed uh, and that enabled these cultures to survive and become, as we said, for example, the 200 countries in the world today, as opposed to the many cultures uh, that were started uh, and uh, did not uh, did not make it and did not survive. Um, so uh, attitudes toward uh, gender, for example, uh, well, uh, cultures need uh, some people to take chances and to uh, uh, to have risks and then possibly even to be uh, um, you know, possibly to be killed in, uh, uh, in in exploration or in battle or whatever. Uh, but cultures are also competing by population. Remember, so most cultures can't afford to lose too many of their females uh, because it will compromise the size of the next generation. Um, and those that do, of course, will struggle to compete in war in other ways against those. Yes, so yes. It's not just. Put, you, you explain it very well in the book. You talk about how it's not like the culture sits around and thinks about these things, but that's what emerges through the competitive process. Right, yes. I was just reading uh, something about the history of China where uh, it had uh, over a 1,000 uh, autonomous uh, local sovereign units, uh, which over a couple centuries ended up merging into seven and then another century or two merging into one. So <laughs> all those you know, 
uh, one giant uh, uh, empire. So I understand how that could shape our current world through past competition among groups and cultures and that the, that the, uh, that the evolutionary or genetic uh, inheritance we have from that process is going to affect you know, who survived and then are, therefore it's going to affect our traits. It's hard to see how that competition works now um, where technology substitutes a lot for population. So to take – finish up with your earlier remark that we've embarked on this egalitarian experiment to make men a little more like women or maybe a lot more. We certainly tried to balance things out. Typically, let's let's say take it as a given that it's typically to advantage the women to give them more of a chance to do some things that they haven't done in the past. And you've suggested that may have costs in the case of science. But what are the cultural forces that are at work now compared to then? The United States, for example, is – sure, we're in competition with other countries, but we're not at much risk of being conquered the way that cultural pressure would would have worked in the past. Uh, that's not as as common. Do you see culture having a different role than today compared to what it had in our prehistory? Um, well, uh, yes, I, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. Certainly, things well, that's a long, are, convoluted are question. I'm sorry about uh, that. <laughs> I, I would have to say, cultures are countries are still competing with each other, uh, but. Uh, we can count our blessings that it's not uh, so often in, in terms of the battlefield anymore. Uh, competition proceeds much more on economic uh, terms, and that uh, is influenced partly by uh, uh, innovation in science and technology. Um, let me let me rephrase it, ask it on more clear. That was a bad question. Let me ask it this way. Let's say we make some of the, the cultural changes that we've embarked on, and we make them permanent. And let's say they have a real cost. Uh, they mean they result in our a lower growth rate because say we have a different rate of scientific innovation and th- this could have many many aspects outside of just um, uh, sexual competition that we're talking about sex differences that we're talking about we we do lots of things in America today uh, people push for lots of things that have um, say would reduce our growth rate are we going to pay a price for that the way we would have in a small group setting of you know in the past where you'd be wiped out, we're probably not going to be wiped out. Where's the, where are the market forces that make those, um, those changes in cultural innovations costly? Yes, well, I, I, I agree. We're probably not going to be wiped out. Um, let's suppose we became a, a second-rate scientific and military power. We could probably continue living on here. We might be more... Um, we might be happier. We'd have lower rates of heart disease. We'd have we'd spend more time with our families. Uh, we can think of lots of benefits of having a less aggressive, less competitive world. Say, which is what there's a cultural force toward that world. They want corporation people want corporations to be less aggressive, less competitive, more empathetic, less bottom line oriented. All yeah. those things are we're, we're in a there's a cultural war along those lines, whether it's male female or or philosophical differences. There's not that much – are there cultural pressures to keep those things in, from happening? Yes, I, I don't really have a, a full grasp of what – you know, how we would suffer and, and so forth. I remember visiting Switzerland a year or two ago and uh, the U.S. was having all these involvements. I think, well, why can't we just be like Switzerland take care of our own problems instead of trying to send our troops all over the world to fix everybody else's problem? Uh, we uh, you know, driving ourselves into the poorhouse uh, and everything else. 
but uh, but most of the, the you know, political commentators and so on think, no, the idea that America should retreat into itself is just a, a stupid strategy uh, that we need to continue to be influential. And you know, we are dependent on others uh, for trade and for oil and things like that. We might, uh, if if we had less to offer. Uh, because of less uh, scientific innovation and, and so forth, then uh, we might be in a weaker position and um, um, even uh, economically the quality of our life might decline. But uh, but as you say, there might be uh, benefits as well if we uh, didn't didn't work as hard. I'm always struck when I go and live in Europe for a while that they, uh, they seem to have at the societal level decided that people just in general wouldn't work as hard. Uh, the average American uh, gets... Uh, Something like eight or nine days of vacation a year, and doesn't even take all of them. Whereas uh, uh, the Europeans, uh, five weeks is sort of a minimum in many countries, and, and everybody goes and they spend so much time uh, relaxing, and uh, they don't they aren't driven to produce as much in their uh, in their work as we do. You know, it works fine. Well, it's uh, that much. Uh, perhaps uh, we should really consider uh, as doing it. And yet, you know, we see Europe is now right. Uh, not in a situation where other people are saying, oh, yes, I wish we could be more like Europe. They're struggling (laughs) a little bit. That model's sustainability may not turn out to be as high as as we once thought. One last question. Uh, You refer to a lot of of work in the psychology literature, uh, some of it approvingly, some of it less so. What role do you think social science plays in this uh, evolving role of, of men versus women versus how much of it's just a response to it? How scientific do you think the literature is? Uh, well, uh, I mean, there is plenty of good social science, but I would say in the fields of gender uh, that uh, there are more people with access to grind and, and more bias and then political correctness, so that, that lowers the quality of stuff. You are not free to just think any thoughts or follow your ideas or your data wherever they lead. Um, many people, moreover, specifically choose who choose to study gender. I mean, the field is now uh, chiefly dominated by women who uh, have strong agenda that they want to uh, promote in terms of what they think women should be like and and, and so forth. So, uh, you know, I I believe in the value of social science and in its potential to do good for society on its own, but I fully recognize that it is is sometimes compromised and uh, people who have a... You know, want to use who are scientists second and you know, have political goals that take precedence. Although I, I respect many of the political goals that they have, they want to make the world a better place and promote equality and things like that. But um, using science in the service of that, if it starts to alter how you do science and, and certainly the pressures you put on what can get published and so forth, well, you don't want to allow this article to be published because uh, people don't like its conclusions or something like that. And that that does tend to happen. And so I, I think the science of gender differences is one of the less prestigious areas in social science, and probably to some extent it deserves that. Uh, people are not uh, doing it with the, uh, the dispassionate zeal to find out the truth, whatever it is, that really in the long run makes for the best uh, the best science. We have the same problem in economics. My guest today has been Roy Baumeister. Roy, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a great uh, discussion. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.